Today on CityCast Pittsburgh. Like a lot of Pittsburghers, our team likes to garden. My spot is pretty modest, just a little patio and a hillside that I have covered in containers and a couple of raised beds. And that's probably not the way I would have planned it, but also like a lot of Pittsburgh, the soil around my house kind of sucks. And that hillside is covered in this invasive plant called stinging nettle, and it spreads so easily if you try to touch it. And according to Carnegie Museum botanist Mason Eberling, I'm not the only one trying and failing to get rid of it. It's Tuesday, August 2nd. I'm Megan Harris, and this is CityCast Pittsburgh. Newsletter editor Francesca DeBecco is also having a hard time. I dropped by her new house just a few minutes from my place. Uh, oh, this is such a nice blank slate, though. It is. It would be nice as a blank slate if there wasn't all of this knotweed. So what happened was there were these big bushes in the back right corner, my little backyard in the city, all fenced in here. And we wanted to tear them out to make like a vegetable, like a raised bed vegetable garden. Uh, but then the Japanese knotweed started spreading and it's really coming further into the grass and the clover that's here. And um, we sprayed the poison and it didn't work. Uh, we've cut it back, but apparently when you cut it back, it also spreads more. Uh, so I'm feeling really uh, depressed and needless to say, we didn't get to plant a garden this year. So um, hopefully we can manage to get rid of this so that we can have a garden next year. But I'm just not, um, I'm not so confident. I don't, I don't know what to do. From Francesca's side to mine, like how often do you hear stories like this? Yeah, I'd say all the time. <laughs> yeah, the most things I hear about are people either um, love certain plants or they hate certain plants, usually not in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, and in particular, the ones that people don't like are the ones that are in their garden that they don't want there and they have trouble keep getting rid of them or ones that um, give them nasty rashes or hurt them in various ways. Um, <laughs> right. So yeah. <laughs> You're not used to nature turning on you in this way, not in the modern era. Um, what are the most common invasive plant species that you talk about or get asked about or deal with? yourself maybe yeah well, i'm a forest ecologist so i study the natural areas and forests around pittsburgh so i'm particularly interested and in, i know a lot about the the forest invaders so this those is that your are season. natural yeah. areas <laughs> yeah so um yeah japanese knotweed is actually a really big one a big big interest of mine from uh, both from a personal and professional level um given that it is so common in pittsburgh i would have to say the knotweed diversity in Pittsburgh is um, perhaps among the highest. Um, really, what around makes, what, <laughs> you've got a sparkle in your eye as you say this. Like, what makes it is so impressive? I don't know if that's the right yeah. word. Yeah, no, yeah, I guess it's the right word. <laughs> um, but yeah, so our rivers and waterways are lined by them, and I think it's a, uh, a some introduced plants are invasive, but um, this is an example of one that is definitely invasive. It is you know, um, forms these monocultures, just knotweed and nothing else. And then I say the uh, impressive diversity of Pittsburgh. Um, it's kind of the, the mecca of um, Pittsburgh knotweed diversity because we have giant knotweed, which are, is the species that has these huge leaves that are kind of heart-shaped, like the size of your face or larger. And then there's also the Japanese knotweed, 
which oftentimes people call everything Japanese knotweed, but we actually have a lot of giant knotweed. Um, it's, so it's a related species, looks pretty similar, but the leaves are smaller. And then the fun thing about this um, species complex is they also hybridize. So there is a variation between the giant and the Japanese. And um, yeah, so at my field site, we have um, all three and um, they are all around. <laughs> and in fact, it's the, the hybrid actually seems to be the most invasive and the Japanese knotweed actually is less common in Pittsburgh, though it is around. Yeah, well, and I, I would love your take on this because I feel like I hear the terms like naturalized and native and invasive. Yeah. Um, what makes the difference? You know, how does a, a species become invasive at all? Yeah, yeah, that's a um, that's a huge question, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but important one, I guess, terminology wise. Yeah. Um, a, an introduced species is one that's non-native that was brought, you know, outside of its native range. And so, I mean, in Pennsylvania, we have over 3,000 species in Pennsylvania um, that's been recorded that lives in the wild, and about a third of which is actually not from Pennsylvania, but lives in Pennsylvania. It so sounds about pretty... like our regular population, too. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. And so it's actually quite a pretty high uh, proportion. But a lot of introduced plants don't necessarily cause a problem. You know, yeah. things that you might plant in your garden, like corn, for instance, uh, farmed yeah. plants, stuff like that, or just even ornamentals. Um but there is a certain proportion that do really well. And so they might be from areas that are similar to Pennsylvania or similar to where they're introduced, like from places in Europe and East Asia. East Asia has very similar forests to us, China and Japan. They're forests that are almost look identical to our forests. Um, so it makes sense that they do well here in Pennsylvania. And some of those might become what's called naturalized. Um, so they're introduced, they're naturalized. They can form like, they can reproduce, they can go to seed. And they kind of just stay they kind of in some kind of mind their own business, so to speak. They kind of stay in the area where they're introduced and they don't like they're not rapidly spreading, but they're maintaining without you having to garden them or do anything with them to keep them there. Gotcha. And then the and then the last category is, which is a even smaller subset, is the invasive plants. And those are the ones that are of most concern. Um, but it is kind of a continuum. So some species that are naturalized might become invasive many decades later. So so oh, naturalized yeah. species are still a concern. We have many examples of plants that have been here for a couple hundred years, uh, unknown why um, or studying why, um, just kind of all of a sudden their population kind of explodes and they become invasive. And the definition of invasive then are those that are actively spreading and have populations that are spreading and then those populations are reproducing and then they're spreading across the landscape. And those are usually the ones that are more, so like knotweed is one um, that's actively spreading. And those are more of a an economic and ecological concern usually because they have impact generally. Do you like to dance? Look at beautiful art, eat gourmet snacks, people watch? Well, mark your calendars for Friday, June 7th for one of my favorite parties in Pittsburgh. It's Mattress Factory's 25th Garden Party. The theme this year is make-believe, and it's all to celebrate and support the creatives in our community. There's going to be live music, an open bar, an art auction, and probably my favorite, the costume contest. Trust me, I will be judging yins, and so will everyone else there. Be playful, be imaginative, explore your magical realm, because this is a theme party you want to come dressed to impress. You must be 21 and up to attend, and rest assured, every dollar raised goes directly towards supporting the museum, its art, its education, and all of its community outreach initiatives. Get your tickets now to the 25th Mattress Factory Garden Party. 
They are in our show notes and online at mattress.org. Yeah. And as I'm thinking about that in-between space that you're talking about, like between naturalization Mm -hmm. and becoming invasive, like what can turn the tide? You know, I I know we don't necessarily have the answer specifically for individual plants, but you know, the first thing that came to mind um, for me, a layperson, is like maybe a predator um, disappears Mm -hmm. or something like that. Is that, is, is that along the right lines at all? Yeah, you know, that is along the right lines. Actually, some of the, <laughs> it totally is. It's actually maybe even or like the environment changes or, yeah. or the removal of a predator. So in the, in a case of a lot of invasive plants, many in the forest in particular are facilitated either directly or indirectly by deer. So oh, okay, deer yeah. overabundance. So actually kind of the removal of the deer's predator, um, either be humans and other like higher carnivores um, and the, and what we've been doing to the landscape, kind of chopping it up and making habitat for deer. Um, then the deer might either avoid certain invasive plants and okay. eat native plants yeah. kind of at the benefit of invasives or just more generally cause disturbance. So a lot of different like human caused disturbances have been shown to increase invasive plants um, that may have been kind of like, la- you know, this what they call an invasion lag, this like decade long um, staying in naturalization, you know, staying as naturalized plants, not too concerned. And then kind of out of nowhere, it's like, oh, my goodness. Um, so one, an example of that is like garlic mustard mm-hmm. has been in, in the U.S., um, which is a, a forest herb. It was introduced as a kitchen herb, actually, and it, it has a, um, a garlicky, you know, taste to it, I guess, and smell. Yeah, I actually just got some in my CSA box a couple of weeks ago, and I had never oh, really? heard of it. And then I was laughing oh. while looking up, you know, some invasive plants. And I was like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is different. You don't usually have yeah. your CSA well, crossover with your invasive plant species research. I'm guessing that it wasn't actively planted. It was probably just foraged because it's just like everywhere. So that's interesting. Yeah, I've heard more and more people um, kind of foraging invasive plants um, that are around, like garlic mustard in particular. Yeah, I was curious, actually. um, You know, do you have any recommendations for like the home connoisseur that, you know, maybe wants to allow these plants to be okay for a degree, to a degree, right? Like for teas or for foraging or, um, you know, like wild herbs, things like that. But they don't necessarily want them spreading all over their yard. Yes. Um, and I've actually, as a private gardener, so I've, I'm a forest <laughs> ecologist and I like, I'm obviously love plants and the bottom, right. I'm into plants, but I also am like, also, I don't like study everything about plants. So I also am like making mistakes, including planting like peppermint in my garden and like, whoops, <laughs> Has it taken over? And, then it, and then it just kind of takes over. And then I'm like, Oh my goodness. So it's been a multi, um, multi-year struggle to keep it at bay. Um, <laughs> but I guess what I did learn was yeah, some herbs are best kept in pots <laughs> and um, carefully watched. Um, mostly, um, not so much for escape, you know, escaping into the woods, but for um, although that happens, but more just to keep it out of your other garden that you're trying to plant, and so you don't just have a, a garden of one thing that you wanted but didn't want that much of. Um, so yeah, judicious planting of um, potted individuals is a big thing. Interesting. I, w- I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. And then, um, of course, there are a lot of invasive plants that most invasive plants that I've mentioned that are like um, known to be harmful and are actually like on state lists, like the state of Pennsylvania says are a concern, um, were first introduced um, intentionally, like for, for gardening, because they are beautiful. They might have foliage, you know, leaves that come early or leaves that turn bright red or have nice flowers and so on and so forth um, and are commercially propagated. You know, you can buy them at Lowe's and buy them at wherever, Home Depot. Any examples? Yeah. So um, I guess a really big one is Japanese barberry. 
You've heard of barberry? Yeah, I have literally six of them planted on my hillside outside this window. <laughs> yeah, there you go. They're very pretty, but you can't get near them. They, their yeah, name is and, accurate, barbs. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons they're popular is the foliage and the uh, deer don't really eat them too much. And that's kind of a big thing as a home gardener is like, can I plant this without deer? At least in my house, it's like, there are all these native alternatives, but a lot of them are really tasty yeah. um, to the deer. So you, you know, pay big money to have a nice shrub and then it's gone in the day. And it's like, ah. um, and barberry is one of those. But um, yeah, but barberry was just, just last year added to the list in um, the state of Pennsylvania that it's, it will no longer be commercially available. And it's actually illegal to propagate in, in Pennsylvania and, and to sell no in Pennsylvania. Idea. And so there's a whole list of plants and the, there's a, a, a uh, a group of people in the in the state that is um, evaluating these these uh, different plants, and I think there will be more and more added. But yeah, I mean Ohio is good in that regard too. Yeah, so other surrounding states, particularly New England, I believe, is a little bit farther along in terms of regulation and management of invasive species and yeah. its possible implications. Respecting those boundaries, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you mentioned management. Are there any natural solutions that you have you would recommend? Um, we internally here have been joking about Allegheny Goatscape, uh, but mm, our mm-hmm. yards definitely don't merit that kind of attention. Um, and most yeah. people can't afford an entire pack of goats. Um, so what yeah. is available to, you know, the regular folk if they want to try to address some of these concerns but don't necessarily want to douse their yard in poison? Yeah, I know. But I mean, if you don't have a, a large amount of property, you know, if you're not like managing this huge forest um, and you have a small amount, I, I mean, I think just blood, sweat and tears is probably the best option for a lot of these invaders. Hands and knees pulling it yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think so knotweed is particularly troublesome now. And it's one that hopefully I don't get um, too many hate emails from this, but I think it is one <laughs> that is, you know, so far it just seems like it does need some type of chemical treatment if it's a large stand. Or if you have the capability of, you know, shading it out for many seasons or like, you know what I mean? Really doing, because even if you get in there with a bulldozer and, and whatever, it's just all it takes is these little below ground structures, these rhizomes. And sometimes just digging and doing things actually makes it kind of reinvigorates it. Oh, my gosh. Um, you may cut early in the season, cut again, and then spray kind of thing mm-hmm. um, versus just, you know, foliar dousing um, over and over, but is like a targeted treatment. And I think that some of those treatments, um, of course, are not free of ecological concern, but um, is at least minimized. And you kind of have to weigh the, the cost and benefits of, um, you know, treating the problem. Well, so for uh, if you, you know, at this point in the season, um, as folks are looking ahead, um, are, do you have any recommendations on, you know, uh, what's going on in your garden that might be able to be applied to others? Um, you know, lessons that you've learned or something that, you know, you would recommend as like kind of a parting wisdom for our listeners? Oh, boy. Um, parting wisdom. Um, I mean, I think the my biggest parting wisdom for invasive species and, and planting in general is just, you know, look up Google's great <laughs> and look up, <laughs> look up the, uh, look up the species that you're planting. Cause sometimes that you don't realize that, you know, you may be paying $50 and it's already like just in the woods right behind you. Like Barberry, for instance, I see, I've seen yeah. it for sale for like $50 and it's just like, it's like spreading in the woods by my house. So it's kind of like, Oh geez, I can't believe people are actually buying this. So I think just kind of being aware um, of, of what's, what's available. Um, and, and this kind of, I think this native species awareness is a big thing, but in terms of um, advice on actual gardening, I just think 
<laughs> I don't know. Whatever you love? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think whatever brings you joy. I think there's a lot, uh, you kind of can't go wrong with a lot of different um, of these, if you do your homework and are getting it from a you know native plant garden, for instance. Um, the only way you can get it wrong is if it's not in the right habitat, of course, like it needs a different sunny, you know, it needs sunny or wetter location, et cetera. But, um, but otherwise it's, um, most likely the plant you pick will be a good resource for some local pollinator bird or, or animal. So, and beautiful. Yeah. Um, Mason Eberling is the assistant curator of botany at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. Uh, thanks so much for, you know, sharing your expertise with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks. For what it's worth, and this can be an unpopular opinion, I found a little success using a chemical. Again, it only works because I'm doing raised beds for my vegetables, but it has been successful in getting rid of my nettle, at least where I've tried it so far. If you want more info about that, or you've got a better idea that we can share with listeners like you, please call, text, or DM us. We're at CityCastPGH on all platforms and at 412-212-8893. A little news before you go. You might notice some low-flying, slow-moving aircraft overhead these days. But before you freak out, that's the Allegheny Health Department dropping oral rabies vaccines for raccoons. The county is giving out more than 300,000 doses of the vaccine, some by aircraft and some by hand. The so-called vaccine bait is a small blister packet with a liquid vaccine covered in this waxy green coating that is supposedly attractive to raccoons. It's not harmful to pets, and it isn't likely to fall on your head, but you might want to keep your pup on a leash just to be safe. And Homewood Park is getting some new permanent art. City officials picked four locals to create the installations, and they're prioritizing depictions of people and events important to the neighborhood. We'll keep you posted on when that work gets started. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. If you're liking the show, please tell a friend. Share it on your social feeds, or if you're really generous, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it when listeners like you take the time to do that. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. We'll see y'all then. <sighs> okay, good enough. <laughs>